Hello, and welcome to the IDI, a podcast by and for market access professionals. I'm your host, Ira Apfel. Each episode, we conduct in-depth interviews to help you optimize your value strategy and commercialization and help people access the healthcare they deserve. The IDI is presented by Valuate Health Consultancy. Follow Valuate on LinkedIn or visit us at valuatehealth.com to learn more. Today on the IDI, the state of cancer care, where we're at and where we need to be. A recent study by the American Cancer Society found that the U.S. cancer death rate has fallen 33% since 1991. That translates into an estimated 3.8 million deaths averted. That's great news, but the war on cancer is hardly over. Cancer screenings have been slow to, to recover since the start of the pandemic, according to a new study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and that could lead to more undetected cases, including late-stage diagnoses. What's more, the cost for treatment remains a huge barrier for some patients. One recent study in the Journal of Clinical Oncology put the economic and human cost of cancer in adolescents and young adults at 23.5 billion overall. That works out to nearly $260,000 for each patient. Clearly, the treatments and therapies for cancer care have improved, but if patients and loved ones can't afford them, then they're not especially useful. To get a sense of what needs to be done in cancer care, and in particular, how to improve access and affordability, I brought in two guests to the podcast. My first guest is John Hennessy. He's a colleague of mine at Evaluate, and he's a return guest to the IDI. He's a former executive director of the Kansas City Cancer Center and former executive director of the cancer community cancer program at the University of Kansas Hospital. Currently, John is an advisory board member of Revital Cancer Rehabilitation, and that's an innovative cancer rehab program developed by Select Medical, one of the nation's leading providers of post-acute care. And of course, you can follow John on LinkedIn. He's a great follow. You definitely want to check him out on LinkedIn. And my second guest is Matt Farber. Matt is the Vice President for Enterprise Partnerships with Offscript Health, one of the fastest growing patient access, impact, and content influencers in the United States. Matt is a nearly 20-year veteran of the, of the oncology space. He's, working, he's worked for a variety of companies that have dealt with all aspects of cancer care, including the Association of Community Cancer Centers, Walgreens, and AbbVie. Matt worked on the specialty pharmacy side of care when he was with Walgreens and on the commercial oncology business while with AbbVie, helping to launch educational programming for patients and caregivers. And of course, you can follow Matt on LinkedIn as well. So without further ado, let's welcome John and Matt to the podcast. So John and Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ira. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'll start with you, John. Uh, we're talking here about the, the, some of this data that just came out about uh, uh, cancer uh, rates. And my question to you first is, is, is this falling rate data, is, is it good news or is it, is it good news with an asterisk? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think it's, uh, the answer to your question is yes. Um, it's good <laughs> news. And yes, there's an asterisk. Um, you know, I think we, we all know that when we detect cancer early, um, we have better outcomes. And it's just a simple, it's really simple logic. You know, when you find something that's small and you can excise it either surgically or treat it with um, radiation, now that we have some really amazing technology for targeting radiation, um, we have better and longer survival. And I think those are two different things, but they're both important. 
Longer survival in and of itself is nice, but what we really want is better survival. When you talk to cancer patients, they don't just want a longer life, they want a good life as well. So those are all positive things. That said, you know, as we get further upstream in terms of identifying cancer or chasing cancer, we also catch a whole lot of stuff that isn't cancer. And so that's the trade-off there is as we get more aggressive in screening, in uh, in chasing this stuff down and finding things at smaller and smaller, you know, uh, volumes, are, are we changing tra disease trajectory or just in adding, you know, toxicities to people's lives, either logistical, financial, and even some, you know, some health effects that probably aren't necessarily helpful either. So, yeah, I think it's always good news when we're doing a better job at taking care of cancer. We just have to be concerned about the side effects of the side effects. And now, how about you? What's your take on the data? I, I mean, I think John did a great job of, of summarizing all of that and some of those unintended consequences of new technology. Um, so, yes, I do think it is certainly good. It is good news. Um, but it, it definitely opens up some new questions, um, especially around the increased amount of data that we're going to be gleaning from all this, you know, earlier treatment. These new biomarker tests that are happening, hopefully, you know, earlier than than they might have in the past. You know, what do you do with that information? To John's point, might you start treatment earlier than you would have otherwise? Um, you know, I think these are all excellent questions that you know are now we can now face because of this technology. Um, but clearly, it is having a good a good impact. Um, you know, the asterisks you talk about, I think there's definitely a few out there, you know, what will, will the data continue to hold as we fully, more fully emerge from COVID? Um, you know, will that have any other negative impacts? I and mean, we certainly saw, um, you know, a lot related to care and screening, which we'll get more into, um, as it pertains to that, uh, to that kind of period of time, which it seems like we're kind of coming out from now, but I think there's still more we're going to learn. Um, and we haven't seen yet, and the data will have to will have to give it some time for to compile all of that. But yes, on the whole, I think these are very good numbers that we should all be you know be certainly very happy about. And then, what do you, what do you see are the biggest challenges right now for for cancer care? Uh, they seem to be doing a, a better job of detecting earlier, which is which is a great thing. Uh, but what 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 would, what would rise to number one on your list of challenges that needs to be overcome? Oh, number one, I mean, I feel like there should there could be a one, a one A, a one B sometimes, but uh, I'm sure I'll cover one, and John will probably, you know, do a good job of hitting some of those other ones for me. I, you know, I think you can't ignore issues related to affordability, and there's so much uh, associated with that. We know cancer care can and does cost a lot of money. Um, we know not all treatments are covered or covered equally, uh, depending on your insurance, um, you know, the type of insurance you have and, and things like that. So that's obviously a concern. We know there are some um, some fixes coming as it pertains to out-of-pocket costs for certain uh, insured patients. Um, you know, there's some laws that are being passed that will reduce the cost of some of these products, which I think is certainly very interesting, but that doesn't necessarily change other affiliated costs that can come with your cancer treatment. Um, we often hear about things like people are paying for the medication and not paying for other things, you know, housing, rent, heat, food, things like that. Um, and so that falls by the wayside. When you are in uh, active treatment of certain types, uh, you know, whether it's in infusion um, or uh, radiation, you might not be able to work. Okay, so there's, um, you know, financially, um, financial issues that you're having because of your care as well. 
you know, it's not always about the cost of the drug. That definitely is part of it, but it's just the overall cost to the person, you know, and just really kind of healthcare system overall is is definitely still an issue. And I don't see that necessarily changing anytime soon. John, what, what do you think um, a pharma can do about the affordability issue? Um, and not, not just beyond drug costs, is there anything or, or is there anything that you think that they are actually focusing in on right now that they're trying to uh, uh, address with uh, with respect to cost? But it's a really good question. I, I think it's the the first you know instinct is well, I want to make sure my product is affordable, but that doesn't take into account all the other social elements that are involved. I think one thing we've seen that uh, that is particularly helpful is um, focus on caregivers. You know, it's not mm-hmm. just the patient who's involved here; it's the caregiver as well. And and, and Matt rightfully focuses on you know the financial issues and some of the social issues. We just have to remember that it's not just the patient who deals with that; it's the entire family. And when we get into you know different underserved populations, um, you know, I used to work in in workers' comp many years ago, um, and with with certain populations, a prescription wasn't just the patient's population; it was the family's prescription. So understanding how how that works, I think, is particularly important. The other thing I think I've seen some folks focus on is health literacy. Don't just throw a support program out there and assume that the person on the other side knows what to do with it. You know, for as much as we spend time on patient support programs, both financial and and social, we don't find the level of engagement we would like. And I think we need to understand why is it that people feel they can't access these things. There was an interesting paper at the ASCO Quality Symposium a couple of years ago, which talked to patients who had been referred for financial assistance. And what they felt was that they might be discriminated against based on being eligible for that or seeking that assistance. So we've got to also think about permissions. You know, is it okay to ask for these things? We've gone through a period with the uh, the COVID pandemic where a lot of people lost trust in the health system, lost trust in physicians, lost trust in public health. We kind of have to restore that to be able to provide sort of a universal solution we're gonna need for cancer patients and their families, Matt, what do you what 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 do you think about the issue of of equity in in access? It's not just about affordability. I'm talking about now. I'm, I'm trying to go beyond that, saying, you know, uh, if you're in a rural area, can you even access it? Or you're in an area where there's just not a whole lot of uh, uh, cancer care um, around. Uh, how is that being addressed? You know, I think that that's an excellent question. It really hits at the core of of all of healthcare from from you know start to finish, and by that I mean, you know, clinical trials and drug development all the way through uh, care. And and I think it's something that a lot of companies are are trying very hard to address. And some of them are doing a very good job with that of, of making sure there there are you know more more people who have access to the products regardless of what you know, where they live, what their background is, their socioeconomic status, anything like that. Um, but we're not all the way there. And I, I think that these are things that, you know, are getting more publicity of late. You know, the term social determinants of health, I think 10 years ago was not nearly, was not talked about nearly as much as it is today, five years ago, probably even. Um, and I think it's great that it's starting to get more attention that there are, there are more factors here that pertain to people's health and things like that. But it even goes, you know, beyond that, it's not just now social determinants of health, you know, there's other aspects of this that, you know, I think we're starting to delve into. And there are papers that are being written to John's point that are really helping, you know, for example, like what's the difference between social determinants of health and health related social needs. Um, there was a great National Academies paper on this topic. And so I think just 
These are the types of conversations that companies need to be having to really look at this and address this to say, what are we missing? I think to, to John's point, is it is there a stigma associated with some of these, you know, these programs? Is it a literacy issue? Um, these companies have all been operating under the paradigm of we need to make everything, you know, um, we can everything we, we need patients to access at a fifth grade reading level. Is that actually maybe too high? You know, uh, foreign language, um, uh, do we have to what do we have to do there? It's not just Spanish, it's other languages as well um, to try and make sure we're getting this information in front of people and doing it in the right way. So. You know, I think that the companies that a lot of them have put a lot of investment into better understanding this. We're seeing a lot more scholarly journals and papers written about this. And I think we're seeing some slow, slow uh, improvement in this, um, but we're not all the way there. And John, did did COVID exacerbate or actually raise these issues of social determinants of health or because I'm, I'm wondering you know, it sounds obvious now that the two of you are speaking so eloquently about it. It just seems like, oh, yeah, this is a no brainer. We should be concerned with affordability and access and health literacy. We're, we're, was the cancer care community thinking about this, you know, five years ago? And, and, and if not, why not? I'm curious about that. So I think certainly one thing that uh, the, the pandemic did was it brought into focus the opportunity that, that uh, telemedicine offers. Um, and particularly for practices who have populations who live you know far away um texas oncology is one that comes to mind where they service you know broad swaths of the state of texas where you know it's it would take a day literally a day to come into the office for a particular service and the question is can they handle it in other ways and so at the at the most recent asco quality symposium just a few months ago they had a couple of posters talking about how they are adapting their care model to meet the needs of patients who have transportation challenges. And that's just not saying I don't have access to a car. It's just that I've got to take a day off work or I have to find a caregiver to take a day off work. So they've worked with their advanced practice providers, their, their uh, nurse practitioners to develop sort of an urgent care system that allows people to access that by phone and, and take care of the problem at the home where the patient is as opposed to um, you know, creating a, a real logistical challenge for the patient. Um, there's a real open question as we start seeing the rollback of some of these telehealth uh, um, you know, flexibilities, how is that going to continue to make sense both economically and logistically for these practices? I think another thing that we will see coming out of the pandemic it, with the end of the public health emergency and with the Omnibus um, Appropriations Act, is there a whole lot of folks who've had Medicaid, Medicaid coverage for the past few years who run the risk of losing it? And depending on who you talk to, between five and 14 million people. Um, filling that gap is going to be really tough. It's likely that some of the folks can afford an ACA plan, a, a marketplace plan, but um, just getting them to that point might be particularly challenging. So uh, we may have learned a whole lot of things. The question may be how far are we going to backslide and how is that going to impact these populations who struggle to get access to care? You know, you, you just mentioned, uh, you know, federal aid and, and, and assistance. And so, uh, you know, we're talking today uh, just hours or, you know, about 12, 24 hours after um, President Biden just gave his State of the Union address. and was there anything in, in it, I'm just uh, kind of wondering about, that addressed uh, uh, cancer care and, and, and coverage? It seemed to me to kind of focus more on, uh, you know, insulin and drug pricing costs. But was there anything in, in it, uh, Matt, that you might have heard or John that it kind of said, OK, this is 
this is a good news for uh, for someone or uh, living with cancer or or, or someone who's uh, has a loved one with cancer. Yeah, I, I uh, obviously very timely question. I think that cancer actually did get a fair amount of, of airtime during the president's speech last night. And I think it's definitely worth calling out and probably not terribly surprising given both his personal uh, attachment to it and with the cancer moonshot getting restarted, but also um, with the recent passing of the uh, the IRA. So, you know, let's kind of take them both in turn. So one of the guests that the Bidens invited was a family who had a child with a rare uh, form of cancer who thankfully is doing well. Um, and that's always great when they can highlight those types of stories. Um, but I think that was their, their kind of nod to, we need to keep, you know, putting more money into research. So I think you'll see more money for cancer research uh, proposed in his budget, you know, directly through the moonshot, through partnerships that they're doing. Um, obviously, the NCI, you know, that's usually a pretty, pretty bipartisan issue. Uh, cancer research, um, you don't find too many people holding that up. But uh, I think that's definitely something that we will see in the president's budget moving forward. Um, and then the second one is, I would say, just overall drug affordability. You alluded to the talk about insulin. Yes, that I think is uh, a very important issue. Um, going beyond just the Medicare stipulation where they're restricting the, uh, the out-of-pocket cost for patients and making it for all diabetes patients. But it, in general, they talked about affordability. And I think he even mentioned, you know, cancer drugs can cost. I think he said like 10, 12, you know, $14,000 and he stopped there. I mean, he could have said a month, right? Like he could have really hit home on that, on that uh, affordability point around cancer medications. And so, yes, we know there are aspects of the, of the IRA, the, 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 um, uh, inflation, inflation reduction. Inflation reduction act. Sorry. Yes. It's hard to associate inflation with, with that sometimes because uh, we're talking about healthcare issues, but um, a lot of it hasn't happened yet. And this is so often is the case with many bills that are passed by Congress. They get passed and there's some time that goes before things get implemented or it takes the regulatory agencies. You know, they're the ones who actually have to implement these things, be it HHS or FDA and the like. So the drug affordability aspects really don't come into play still for a couple of more years. And so he spent a lot of time making sure people knew help is coming. You know, they're going to start um, reducing the price of some of these high dollar medications. And we know cancer medications will be among the first few that that uh, will be affected. It's a small number every year, um, but there, there will be some cancer medications which we will see impacted by this. You want people to know it's coming. The out-of-pocket maximums are coming. So, hey, we did this. Pay attention to that, even though you might not see it yet. So, yes, I think a lot more to come in that space. And, you know, with, with Congress divided, with the House being controlled by Republicans and the Senate being, being controlled by Democrats, is it fair to say that, that any kind of uh, funding uh, in, increases uh, that, that uh, Biden uh, mentioned last night, they might be hard to come by? And if, that, if that's the case, how else can the federal government, you know, help address and, and improve cancer care uh, affordability and access? So I, I think one of the things that the Biden administration is doing that's helpful is the re, refocusing on the cancer moonshot. Uh, and you know, we think of the cancer moonshot as somehow all focused on new therapies and new drugs and some sort of you know scientific miracle to occur. And, and we'd all hope for that. But what I really appreciate about what they're doing is focusing on underserved communities. Um, and, and Matt and I have a colleague, uh, Matt Zachary, who uh, we've both known for a long time who is recognized by the Biden administration for doing a podcast series about the challenges of getting access to care in rural communities. 
And so I think what they recognize is that you know f- taking care of cancer, improving the lot of cancer patients isn't all about new therapies or access to therapies. It's about other means of, of getting to the care that they need. And in many cases, once you get to the care you need, making good choices or being engaged in choices, which again is sometimes hard to do. Um, for a lot of patients, it may be less care rather than more care would be something that fits their needs. How do you have a conversation like that with a doctor or with someone who you really don't have a you know sort of an equitable relationship with? You've got a doctor with a bunch of diplomas on the wall and, and you come from a small city in, in the country. You know, helping people with those sorts of things and recognizing that it doesn't have to be a whole lot of spend to make this happen, just maybe focused attention on on certain um opportunities to improve the 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 engagement for patients and the experience for patients. I want to turn now to um, something that you uh, both talked about as we were preparing for the podcast uh, a, a while back. And you both noted that one of the changes we're seeing now in cancer care is a change in the decision makers. Matt, what do you mean by that? And why does that matter? So I think that... Um, you know, in the past, you would have seen, you know, a patient walk into, you know, the office and a uh, doctor says, okay, you've been, I, this is what you have. Here's what you need to do. Um, and, you know, we'll schedule you next week or whatever the case may be. And I think that there's a, an appreciation for th- this really needs to be part of a broader discussion. Um, you know, the term like shared decision-making gets thrown around a lot. I think that's a big part of it of, you know, people want to be more, um, you know, active consumers of their healthcare, which I think is 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 important. Now, we're not talking about necessarily people going on Dr. Google and and thinking they know the answer to everything and bringing that to the doctor's office. But we do have informed consumers. We hopefully they're coming to their appointments with caregivers. Uh, to to John's point, that this really is more of a family discussion and decision many times, and there are other members of the cancer care team involved. Um, you know, be it the the nurses, the social workers. Um, the navigators, if if those cancer centers have that, I think it's important that they're all part of that team because it's not it's not necessarily just the one or the other. Um, there's lots more choices now. Um, I think that maybe the one downside that we're seeing is that there are also third party actors who are taking roles in that, and by that I mean insurance companies or um, you know these these kind of you know DC acronyms, things like PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. There will there are times where there are drugs that a doctor may want to use that they can't because it's not it might not be on on an insurance company's formulary or, you know, a patient has to try another drug first before they can then start the drug the doctor wants to use. That's obviously concerning. You know, it's those types of things that we want to avoid, you know, eliminate some of those types of things, you know, because if it's getting in the way of what the doctor and the patient feel is best, that can impact the care of the patient. So, you know, that's that's kind of concerning to a certain extent. But to kind of t- maybe just tie it back for a moment to something that John was just saying earlier about, you know, the patient involvement in, in everything and, and kind of advocating for themselves, I think you're seeing more opportunities for this too, especially at the state level. Um, it, you know, we mentioned what's the federal government doing. You know, what are state governments doing too? It, it, it can't be kind of overlooked. And they're playing a role too. Elected officials more and more are. The number of state bills right now um, that are either up for discussion or have been passed in the last year or so that are related to things like, um, you know, fail first policies or copay accumulators um, or um, access to certain uh, genetic tests and biomarker tests and coverage of those tests. 
it's increasing every year. So I think there's a recognition that some of these other third-party actors are getting involved, um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. Yeah, John, I was going to say to you, does this uh, you know, increase of third-party actors in, in, in the, the treatment process and, and more uh, educated and uh, involved family members, does that make things actually more difficult for, for cancer care treatment? Or does it make it better because everyone is kind of on the same page and, and there's just more you know, involved thinking people about this, is thinking about how to treat a loved one? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and you know, I remember as uh, I was running an oncology practice, as the internet was maturing, um, the uh, the scourge of the practice was a patient who came in with a folder full of, inter- of uh, articles from the internet. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, uh, shared decision-making is really uh, sort of something we kind of do all the time. When we go into the car dealer and try to buy a car, there's an element of shared decision-making there, and that's a pretty big decision. When we're going to buy a house, we usually take our spouse with us and and try to figure that out. And when we have kids, maybe we bring the kids along. So I think th- this notion um, that shared decision making ought to be a, a requisite of cancer care is really important. Now, we know it doesn't always happen in ideal circumstances. You know, literacy, health literacy is a huge issue. Um, we found that even when we do you know really good training on shared decision making that sometimes there's some backsliding there, particularly for providers who feel rushed because they have to see a certain number of patients a day. And if you've got seven minutes, you know, you may not have a particularly uh, a, a long opportunity for this. So sometimes shared decision making turns into the the oncologist having made a decision and sharing that with the patient and caregiver and, and trying to sell them on that decision. So I think, it, I think structurally uh, we have some real challenges there. That said, the fact that we're having this discussion and, and Ira, some of our customers are having this discussion with, with their clients as well is meaningful. The fact that the, you know, the, the, um, the PPS exempt uh, cancer hospitals are looking at goal concordant care and looking at documentation that in the, in the records suggests they're not only focused on shared decision making, but making sure the goals that came out of that process are highlighted every time the patient and the physician get together. I think those are all good things. Making time for it is challenging, and especially challenging in a time when our workforce is is stressed, um, both by just the the nature of the healthcare system today, and by, you know, we we talked about it earlier. The good news is we're identifying more patients with cancer earlier. We've got to find people to take care of those patients as well, and do that in a way that allows for an informed decision, not just when they start their cancer journey, but a variety of points during that journey as well. And John, how should market access teams think about all of this, uh, all these new challenges that, that you and uh, Matt have uh, listed? Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, as if they're listening to this, what would you, what advice would you give them? I, I, my advice would be that it's not simple blocking and tackling anymore. This is, uh, we've gone from, you know, the chessboard to 3D chess, like you used to see in Star Trek episodes. You know, just putting a patient support site out there isn't enough because you have to make that that patient support site understandable, accessible, actionable, and on the other side, the practice support in very much the same way. And looking at really the process that it takes for the patient, the caregiver, and the physician to come to a decision and access these products, finding a way to make that as uh, transactionally simple as possible. Um, you know, we know when we get to these sort of you know these tough parts where 
there are financial toxicities or it's this medicine or we put food on the table. There are some choices that people are going to make and we want to make it as easy as possible to make the choice that's best for them. And for most cases, it's going to be to pursue a therapy that's going to give them a longer life and a better life. And if we can meet those things and get people to that point uh, as simply as possible, I think those are the things that we ought to be sort of heat checking ourselves on. Did we really accomplish that or did we just produce something that made us feel like we accomplished that? Last question for you both, and I'll kick it off with you, Matt. Um, and it's the same question. Um, what gives you hope or, or at least optimism around equity and affordability in cancer care? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a great way to end, end the conversation. I think there is there is certainly a lot of, of of optimism to have when it comes to to cancer care. I think what we're seeing just in the technology and innovation, more and more personalized care, we are getting the right treatment to the right patient, hopefully at the right time more and more. And I think hopefully we're able to reduce the barriers to that. Uh, those barriers can be financial, they can be legal, they can be insurance related, I think. But um, through the work of some of the things that we've been talking about here, whether that be federal or state government or just uh, advocacy through third party nonprofit organizations or whatnot, I think we are addressing some of those barriers. So I think that those are all good, that um, patients have more choice, more personalized choice. And that certainly makes me optimistic about care in the future. Um, and related to the equity in that, I think the fact that we're, we're having more and more of these conversations is a, is a good first step. Um, again, I don't think it, it solves the problem by any means. But we we are, I think, companies on the whole have addressed that this is an issue um, that you know, we need to look at this. Everything from, you know, clinical trial design all the way through to John's last point. How are we wording patient access materials? All of these things can impact you know, the equity in which pay, people are getting treatment and, and finding that right treatment. So we're having these conversations. We're getting great experts and people who are, are you know, very knowledgeable about these topics to weigh in and, and help these companies with these decision-making um, choices. Um, and so I think that's good. They're talking not just to, to the medical side, they're talking to the market access side, they're talking to the marketing side. I think that's also vitally important as well, um, that everyone in these companies are hearing these messages. So on the whole, it, yes, it definitely makes me very optimistic. And how about you, John? What gives you uh, some cause for optimism? Uh, Matt hit it right on the head. We're having the conversation. Uh, if we weren't talking about it, we, we know nothing would happen. Um, the, the next step is sort of breaking out of our structural norms. You know, one of the big challenges we've always had with access for palliative care in from Medicare population is you have to opt out of uh, treatment essentially to get into that. And that structural barrier was probably more important in, in keeping people from accessing that care than, than any sort of attitude from patients or providers. So, uh, how do we get out of our comfort zone and get into the zone that patients are interested in? And that means not telling folks you got to come to my hospital outpatient department or my practice to get oncology care. We'll find ways to bring it to you. And I think we are seeing some really interesting ideas. Dispatch Health is a really interesting idea where we are taking urgent care to the patients in their homes rather than telling them to find urgent care and figure out how to afford it. Um, some interesting folks are taking a look at uh, delivering oncology care in the home. And that's everything from really entrepreneurial upstarts to really traditional organization like the Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City. 
So the fact that we are seeing that patients' needs may be something that we need to address and not just address by saying we're open from nine to five, that gives me hope. That gives me the sense that we're we're listening to patients and we're slowly adapting to what the market needs and what not what we want to give the market. John Hennessy and Matt Farber, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of the IDI. Thanks again to my guests, John Hennessy and Matt Farber. You can follow both of them on LinkedIn. Be sure to follow the IDI on Apple and Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more market insights, follow Valuate on LinkedIn or visit us on the web at valuatehealth.com. Thanks for listening.